Welcome, everyone, to the Wild West podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle travel editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who are defining and redefining what we do when we go outdoors. Today, we're excited to have ultra-running legend Dean Carnassus on the podcast. Dean has been a pioneer of ultra-marathons and, and super-long-distance running for about two decades, and uh, he's written a number of best-selling books about the sport that have sold millions of copies around the world. And he really helped propel what was a very marginal activity of racing dozens of miles at a time or even 100 miles at a time into more of an established sport that it is today. So when Dean was starting out in the 1990s, ultra-running wasn't really a thing that people did. And even though it's not as popular today as other outdoor sports, it's rapidly developed into an industry where elite athletes can become full-on professionals with sponsorships and fans and specialized gear and media attention and all that. Dean has been at it for a long time. He says he's put more than 100,000 miles on his legs to date, running long distances on all seven continents um, and in crazy extreme climates, which include like triple-digit heat in Death Valley um, and sub-zero temperatures at the South Pole. And even though he still runs and races all the time, Dean says he's starting to feel the effects of putting so much stress on his body. I don't know if I'll ever fully recover. I mean, for my age, yeah, I'm maybe the you know, top 10%, 5% consistently. But I still feel like I'm not what I used to be. Like, my performance has never really come back. Like, I, I can't dig as deep as I used to. And people might say, well, you're doing great. I mean, you're, you know, you're, I don't want to say how old I am, but you're pretty old. <laughs> but I just feel like physiologically something something changed at that point dean was kind enough to come to our san francisco office to record this podcast Uh, he actually ran from his home in marin county down through the headlands over the golden gate bridge and then across the city all the way to downtown Um, and when i came downstairs to meet him i i see this guy standing in our lobby in a tank top and running shorts with a hydration pack on his back and i just had to kind of laugh because, I mean, it's exactly what you'd hope for when you get a guest like Dean to come on the podcast. I mean, it'd be like if Steph Curry showed up to your house for dinner and he's wearing his jersey and he's dribbling a basketball like, hey, I'm Steph. You know, it's, it's just like it's exactly what you'd hope for. In the pod, Dean gives all kinds of interesting insights about his life and, and how he runs. So he talks about how he'll avoid eating after a long run as a kind of exercise and deprivation to get his body to recover on its own. He also sheds some light on the legend of the, the moment that he started ultra running, which was actually when it's a crazy story. It's, he started when he was drunk at a bar in San Francisco on his 30th birthday. And then we also talk about what he's up to today as he plans to run a marathon in every country on the planet in a single year. So we cover a lot, and I hope you guys enjoy it. We'll get into my conversation with Dean after this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my chat with ultra runner Dean Carnassus. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Dean. It's good to have you here. <laughs> Thanks for having me run by, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Quite, quite literally. Yeah. So I came downstairs, and you, uh, you're you wearing, like, literally what I think anybody would imagine you to be wearing, which is, you know, your, your running outfit, running shoes, tank top, carrying your pack. Um, and you actually ran here from Marin? From, live, is it from your home in Marin? Yeah, I live in uh, Marin. Yep. The route I took was, like, 25 miles. 
Okay. Because I went through the headlands. There's like I didn't want to run on the road the whole way. Yeah, I was just no. gonna say, and, but over the bridge and then through the city. Yeah, once you get to uh, the Golden Gate Bridge on the north side, you're pretty much in the thick of it. Yeah. You know? So when you get to the city, what's the route that you take? Basically crossing the whole city. I mean. Yeah, basically crossing. Yeah, and I stayed um, in the Presidio as long as I can, just again, so I don't have to go into uh, a bunch of traffic, and then it's just kind of weaving through the back streets. I, I stay at the major thoroughfares, you know, like Fell and well. Yeah, I stay. I stay on the ones that are don't have bus routes because that's kind of yeah. It'd be brutal. And I mean, I go running in the city, and like you have to stop on every corner. I mean, I do my best not to run in the streets and on the sidewalks as well. I've got good light karma. My crew called called it because um, I ran across America, and I'll tell you what holds you up the most is in cities. Stop big traffic intersections. Interesting. Yeah. So I had pretty good karma. It's like learned how to time it. Just kind of. By watching the other signals where they're, you know, um, changing and pace myself so that I could just kind of get across them. But, yeah, it really slows you down running through the city. Yeah. Well, and so are you also trying to stay off the roads just to spare your knees? Because, like, you know, running on concrete asphalt kind of thing, is that a consideration? You know, I don't kind of subscribe to the to the theory that you only have so many footfalls. Um, oh. I think, you know, trails trails definitely better. But I do a lot of road marathons. I mean, I love to run. So if I'm like a sponsor brings me out to a marathon, they're usually like, okay, well, you can work the expo and then go home. I'm like, hold it. No, <laughs> I'm a runner. I'm going to run the damn marathon. Yeah. And they're almost always on the road. So I probably run a dozen, maybe two dozen road marathons a year. Yeah. Yeah. I've been meaning to ask you, how are your, how are your knees? <laughs> like, my, I mean, mine kill me. Like, I do everything I can to stay off of the roads and to find, like, dirt trails. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've got um, good biomechanics, so I'm pretty lucky there. So I don't think I – I think my um, alignment is pretty good for running. I've always been, you know, like a classic midfoot striker. All the things that are kind of in vogue right now, like quick foot turnover, you know, rapid arm swing. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of run that way naturally. So maybe there's been a little less wear and tear. But I also um, cross-train like crazy. So I do a lot of leg conditioning sort of stuff, uh, mountain bike, um, uh my diet's really good, so I'm really I'm pretty good about like being a complete animal, being the best animal I can be. So I don't just say, you know, just cross train and that should protect your knees. I'm like diet also protects your knees. Um, good quality sleep, you know, everything that goes into it. I think there's not one thing that's helped my knees. But long winded answer, <laughs> I don't have any knee problems. Yeah, that's never awesome. have. Yeah. Yeah, what do you do for uh, recovery? I mean, like there's so much emphasis on recovery these days, and so much science that comes out that. For you know that that dictates how athletes like warm down and recover these days, mm-hmm. um, and it, like I said, I mean it's something that I've certainly given more thought to as I've gotten older. So, what, do you have any tricks or go tos or like a regimen that you subscribe to? Uh, this could be somewhat counterintuitive, but um, sometimes I, I let myself uh, sustain a stressed out state, physiologically stressed state, so I don't try to recover. I let my body tip, you know, not give it good quality protein, deprive it so that it can grow stronger, I think. Huh. That's kind of my theory is, um, you know, your body adapts to the load placed on it. So make it hurt, make it not recover. And then, you know, after an event, when you can recover, you know, indulge. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that does seem just so counterintuitive to all of the things that we, you know, I feel yeah. like we, we hear about these days or all of the things, you know, all the, the new kind of cutting edge science around this stuff. So you don't, like, drink chocolate milk and, you know, whatever after you're done? No, I don't. I mean, you know, uh, after a long, like, a 100-mile race, I'll, I'll definitely splurge. But um, when I'm doing my training runs, unless it's, 
you know, something 40 to 50 mile range where you actually do need to recover, um, you know, just because you don't want to do any lasting damage. But I think damaging your muscles a little bit, um, make, that's how your muscles respond. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I hope so no one who actually knows what they're talking about is listening to this. <laughs> and they're probably like, he's doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah, Dean Carnassus says to uh, <laughs> starve yourself and run long, long stretches at one time. So uh, I guess I wanted to start. I, I had to ask about this because I've read this, I think, in different different articles um, that have come out about you over the years, and um, it's basically about your 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 sort of start as an adult in ultra running. I read about it in <laughs> my uh, my first book. Um, it's right here in San Francisco where the episode took place. So if you read this book, you can probably relate to like a lot of the the places I talk about. But I was in the Marina District. Okay. It was the night of my 30th birthday, doing what you do on your 30th birthday. And around midnight, I said to my buddies, I'm leaving. And they're like, what do you mean? You know, it's your 30th birthday. Let's have another round of tequila. And I said, you know what? I'm going to run 30 miles instead to celebrate my 30th birthday. You know, and they looked at me and they said, you're not a runner. You know, you're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I am. Yeah, you're right. But I'm still going to do it. So I walked out of the, the, the bar, and I used to commute down to Santa Cruz, so I knew that Half Moon Bay was 30 miles away. So I set my sights on Half Moon Bay and just drunkenly ran off into the night. Whoa. Literally, yeah. Were you, so wait, were you already wearing, like, running clothes that you could kind of <laughs> Greg, I, I hadn't run in 15 years. Yeah. I quit running after uh, my freshman uh, cross-country season in high school. So stopped running altogether. But I remember I used to love to run. Um, I didn't have, uh, you know, I had really like comfortable, um, silk, uh, boxers on. <laughs> so I took off my pants. I'm like, these will work. And I had like Reebok gardening shoes or something, something ridiculous. Like I wasn't a runner. Uh, but I, I started running and, um, about 15 miles into it, like daily city, I started sobering up and I thought, what the hell am I doing? This is ridiculous. Um, but it just felt right. Like, the stars were out. You know, it was one of those moments where, you know, the stars were out. The sky was just crystal clear. Um, you know, SFO was in the, like, the background. I could see the planes taking off. And I was on this kind of rural backcountry road. And it was kind of misty. You know, the eucalyptus kind of had that, those drips coming from it. It was real pungent. And I just felt so alive. I'm like, God, I miss this. I miss, I miss just kind of the struggle and just being out there. And, yeah, that night kind of changed the course of my life, literally. Yeah. Did you have any um, inkling at that time, you know, what this was going to lead to or become? I mean, obviously not like <clears throat> long career um, races, book, you know, the whole thing. Mm. But at the time, did you feel like you had a sense of the direction that your life was going to go? Or was it just like you'd reached a turning point and something had to change? I think, you know, I had suffered a midlife crisis, I think, as you called it. I mean, 30 years old is kind of young, but I think that I'd kind of done what society prescribes us to do to achieve happiness. You know, I went through college, I went through graduate school, I got an MBA, you know, business degree. I had this really cush corporate job, fat paycheck, you know, um, stock options, company car, everything. And that those things are supposed to bring you happiness. And I was it's, miserable. It's, it sounds, for the record, it sounds very good. <laughs> it sounds nice. <laughs> it sounded nice to me at the time, too. And then when I when I had these things, I'm like, God, I'm, I'm kind of, it's kind of, I feel hollow inside, like I'm, there's no struggle, like there was nothing intense about my life. It was kind of cruise mode, and I just, I don't know, it wasn't me. I didn't like putting on a suit and going to business meetings. I just knew that I couldn't keep doing this the rest of my life, or I'd be miserable. And I think that night, I just, 
I realized, I didn't think I could make a go of it running, but I thought I'm going to make a go of it somehow else than being a business guy. Yeah. So, and then, so how did you go from there, you know, from that point, how did you kind of turn that into a running career or like what led you, um, after that night towards running? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, they say there's a lot of lessons you learn from athletics that apply to business. But um, being a business guy first, there's a lot of lessons from business that also apply to athletics. And I thought, you know, you can't sustain a living winning races. Like you could be the number one guy in, in ultra marathoning. And this is a couple decades ago. It doesn't matter. You get the same belt buckle that everyone else who you know runs this race gets. Or maybe you get a trophy. There was no prize money or anything like that. So I thought... Uh, you got to do more than just you know running and competing in races. You you got to figure out a way to keep the lights on. And so I said, all right, well, um, maybe I could work with an outdoor company. So the North Face approached me right about the same time and said, hey, we want to get into trail running shoes. Like we think maybe there's a market for people that want specific shoes for trail running. And again, this is you know. 20 years ago, so it's kind of way <laughs> ahead of our time. Yeah. And I, I believed in that. I thought, you know what? I'm a runner, and I, I've run marathons, but running on the trail is, like, so much better. And why don't people? Why don't more people, like, you know, only 5% of all of the runners back then ran on trails. And I thought, this is going to change. Like, And people don't want to go hiking, you know, with big backpacks and Vibram-soled boots. It was – everyone wanted to go faster. So we came up with this theory of um, – this design called flight, fast and light. Light shoes, light packs, kind of um, light apparel. So I started working with the North Face, and that was great. I mean, I'm, here I'm making a salary now, you know, in outdoor, doing something I love. Uh, I wrote a book, which we referenced, um, and I thought if I sell 10 copies to my buddies, I'll be lucky. <laughs> and it became like an overnight New York Times bestseller. You know, I sold a few thousand, 100,000 copies. And I'm like, wow. And all I talked about in this book is kind of this guy running huge distances, like across Death Valley in the middle of summer and all of this stuff. And I thought, if people if people are interested in this, there, there's a market somewhere. There's it, it motivates and inspires people. Um, you know, you can monetize that somehow. Yeah. What did you get a sense was the piece of your book or your sort of story that resonated with people? Because at this time, again, like there's just no running industry that's established in this way, or or sort of ultra running and trail running industries that are established like they are today. Yeah. So so what was it about what you're doing that you that you got a sense kind of reach people? Well, again, um, you know, dating myself, it was quite a while ago when I wrote this book, but I was essentially gigging, if you will, which is so common nowadays, but I was saying, I'm not going to work for the man. Like, I'm going to figure out a way, how, whatever it takes to make a go of it. Like, I'm going to pursue my passion, damn it. I don't care. And I think that was liberating for a lot of people because, I mean, you know, it's been said we all live in prisons with the door wide open. Um, you know, a lot of people spend their life in quiet desperation, as Thoreau said. And here I was saying, I'm not going to be a business guy in quiet desperation for the rest of my life. I'm going to blaze new trails. And if I crash and burn, so be it. But I'd rather crash and burn than, than be, you know, numb the rest of my life. So you think, so you think it was more about that kind of, uh, break from convention, uh, or the norms maybe more so than the actual, like, sport of running that was appealing to people? or I mean, they kind of go hand-in-hand in, hand in a way, but... I think it, it was, you know, so many non-runners read the book and said, wow, right, I just right. that was, like, breakthrough to me. I'm like, wow, are you going to become a runner now? I'm like, no, no, not necessarily. It was just... So I think it was, 
you know, me just kind of blazing my own path and and really taking it to the extreme. I mean, you know, I wanted to become a runner. Well, that didn't just mean, you know, running a 10K or running a marathon. Damn it, I wanted to run, you know, 200 miles nonstop. So I was really not only pursuing my passion, but just, you know, going off the edge with it. And I think it was empowering to people. It kind of gave them permission to pursue their own dreams. I think that's what it was. Okay, yeah. If that makes sense. Sure, of course, yeah. Um, But then shortly thereafter, you start to see the sort of nascent ultra running, long distance endurance events and trail running activities and and kind of movements like starting to, to emerge. So what did that look like? What did that look like kind of in its infancy? Um, and, and how were you a part of that exactly? Well, you know, the the whole idea of trail, ra- trail racing wasn't that popular. Yeah. And, you know, I signed up for this race called the Western States 100-Mile Endurance Run, which is kind of like the granddaddy of ultramarathoning. And it starts at Squaw Valley, um, you know, so Lake Tahoe, and it finishes um, outside of Sacramento in a town called Auburn. So it's a wilderness trail, a 100-mile foot race. That when I first heard about this, I thought, hold it, you know, where are the campgrounds along the way, you know, or where are the hotels? And the guy just said to me, no, the gun goes off and you just run and you stop when you get to the finish line. And I just, I, you know, I thought, I got to try this. It sounds so outrageous. And I wrote about it in my book. And like I said, the uptake of that book was totally unexpected. And now people are exposed to ultra marathoning and yeah. k- kind of seeing it in a really uplifting light. Like, wow, this is intense and it's kind of glorious you know it's I kind of want to try this so I think so many people were influenced by this book and um, they turned on other people too it's kind of like the the network effect you know they said my buddy might enjoy this you know he's he's a badass guy and so ultra running and um, trail running started increasing in popularity and I would just by happenstance kind of had to be the guy that kind of told people about it so I was kind of like the guy and then, you know, kind of that uniform you described prior to this um, uh, interview, you know, I'd run in a, in a singlet, you know, shorts and a pack, a hydration pack, sometimes carrying a water bottle. And that was like the brand of Dean. That was like Dean's image. So anyway, anytime someone saw some guy in a pack, you know, with a singlet that was kind of running, you know, it was kind of fit, they would say, oh, there was a Dean spotting. Like, oh, yeah, it was in, he was in Australia. I saw him. I'm like, I wasn't in Australia. You know. I have run across Sydney Bridge in, in that same outfit, but so people started, you know, saying, "Wow, if you're a trail runner and you got this stuff, it's it's probably Dean." And you know, that was again a long time ago. But I I did the Western States um, for the thirteenth time uh, just last year, and almost the entire way I was running with people, and they would say to me, my my like my paces were amazed. People would say, "You're why I'm here," like continually, and that is so like. To me, it's such a grand compliment. Like, you're why I'm here. I'm like, why? Well, I read your book, and you're why I'm here. And I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So what, I mean, that brings me to a question I wanted to ask, which is what you see as some of the biggest differences between the sport when you were starting out versus today. Um, I mean, it's obviously a lot more popular. It's a lot more visible. There's more commercial interest in it. And the way you just described it, I mean, I think that interest and popularity is kind of like part of, you know, the, the Dean Carnass's legacy. So I'm curious what you make of that. Well, it's changed in kind of the obvious ways. Um, it's gotten uh, a lot more competitive. So it's gone yeah. from kind of grassroots where guys, you know, they're working full-time jobs, training on the side. Uh, we're running these races to all of a sudden collegiate athletes, you know, saying, I want to do an ultra and blazing ultras. I mean, um, you know, the, the speeds and the times have come down incredibly. 
So that competitive element has really um, grown a whole lot. You know, people say, well, is it kind of take away the grassroots feel? I don't think it really does. I I think it's exciting. I think it's equally exciting to have this competitive element. And still a lot of people like the mid-packers and the people are just coming in before the cutoff. They're they're just as stoked about their experience as when there was not these elite runners. I still think that most of the people that run ultras – they don't. They might not even know who won. I mean, they don't track on that kind of stuff. They're in it for their own experience. So um, we have heroes in the sport now, um, great runners. But I think still, they're not that widely known. Um, you know, they're not that widely known or recognized. Yeah. Uh, do you get a sense that that might change? Um, I don't know what it would take for at this point <clears throat> for there to be the next. You know the the next Dean Carnaz is essentially like the next very well known national iconic distance runner. I think I, I kind of uh, just was you know it was like the the right I was in the right place at the right time yeah. like in the growth of the sport I was kind of like the guy now the sport's established so the guy now is going to be the guy who's you know breaking all the records like Jim Walmsley yeah he's kind of the guy. But it's it's a different sort of guy. Like it was, it's not a guy that you hear about that inspires you to try something new. It's just a guy that's hella fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a guy, but it's just kind of different guys. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because yeah. it's the you know it's the uh, the same mechanics, right? Um, well, you know, for perspective, I mean, I think there was a hundred thousand um, finishers of ultra marathons last year. And I think there's something like um, 10, 10 million people that finished 5Ks or half marathons. So it's still a vast minority. I mean, we think the community of ultra running is so big now because it's all like we all know each other. Um, but still in perspective, it's it's a very, very small percentage of people that do ultras. And even I write for Ultra Running Magazine, even the readers of that magazine, very, very small percentage ever run 100 miles. So I'm thinking, you know, all these guys I'm surrounded with, yeah, everyone runs 100 miles. It's still a very, very small group of people. Yeah. You kind of have this interesting, I mean, this is my interpretation, but you sort of have this interesting position. Like you sort of have a foot in, uh, you know, in, in each group, I think, like the kind of elite runners, but also the, you know, as being like one of the the early ones, but also the audience that you seem to speak to, like you've described, is a non-runner or a casual runner. And so... Yeah, it kind of makes me, it just makes me wonder about like what you were describing about the kind of grassroots of the sport and how that's evolving. Well, I think, you know, somehow I broke through just not just to ultra marathons, but just to everyday runners. Like when I go to a marathon, like if you were to like shadow me at Boston Marathon, I can't walk around without people going, oh my God, it's Dean Carnassus. So (laughs) I run, you know, I've run a few hundred marathon, regular marathons. There's not a lot of ultra marathoners that are also running marathons. They're kind of like specialized. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of, you know, I can go to 5K and people know, wow, you're that ultra marathon guy. Like you're that big runner. It's it's weird, but it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. I didn't script it that way. It just kind of ended up being that way. Yeah. You've, you've talked about this before, but I, I wanted to ask, like, when you're going long distances, what's going through your mind while you're running? You know, everything and nothing. I think that's the, the beauty of ultra marathoning. I mean, you can, uh, you're free, right? I mean, think about our everyday lives. We're just bombarded with noise. You know, we get tweets and we get text and, you know, there's ads. It's just, it's noise. And when you, you can't really think for yourself in these environments. When you run on a trail in nature, your mind is free. So you can wander, your mind can wander. And I don't know, I think having a relationship with nature is so important. And I think 
that probably 99% of America has no relationship with nature. I mean, nature to them is maybe a car trip to Yosemite. Mm-hmm. But I mean, immersive, immerse yourself in nature. I feel more comfortable when I'm running by myself up Mount Tamalpais than sitting in this room right now, much more so. Yeah. Yeah. But not a lot of people, you know, and I think that's our animal selves. That's where we came from. But a lot of people just have no relationship with nature. They get in their car, you know, they go to their office, they go to the mall, you know, the coffee shop, they come home, you know, they might walk in the park, but they're not really getting out in nature that way. Is there a certain, you know, mileage or, uh, sort of feature on, you know, maybe your route, like one of the routes that you take up Mount Tam where something clicks and you're like, now, you know, now I've crossed the threshold. Yeah, it, typically it takes about an hour, hour and a half for me. Okay. You have running because, you know, again, my mind gets, I'm an introvert by nature. So I get very overwhelmed and I need to like compartmentalize things, put life in perspective. So when I run, it's typically like an hour, hour and a half of just sorting through shit, you know, trying to, okay, you know, is this important now? It's a no big deal. Okay, this is really important. Focus on this. Once that's all kind of put away, then it gets good. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, I mean, that said, I also, like, I, I love reading. And when you're training as much as I train, when do you read? Um, well, I listen to audiobooks. So I'm, I'm listening to a couple great books right now. And on the way over here, probably half the run I was listening to an audiobook. Oh, what were you listening to? <laughs> you really want to know? Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, it's a, a female um, uh, interpreter who uh, interprets Homer. I've read Homer uh-huh. so many times. Well, the Odyssey. Yeah, and I wanted to get a female's perspective. Interesting. Yeah. So it's a, actually a different translation of the original text. You know, when you translate a text, it's a, it's an interpretation. So it's not a yeah. it's not a you you can't really translate um, the Odyssey line by line. So it's the way she it's through her lens that she tells the tale. And I'm 100% Greek. That's why I'm kind of into it. Yeah. But the way the um, the Odyssey is is written or the Iliad, uh, it's very interpretive. You know, like when someone has, you know, a great heart. How do you how do you say you know how do you express that um, a male versus a, a female? You know, or someone's passionate. How, how do you explain someone's passionate? You know, from that perspective. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. I found that when I run, it's also gives me a time to sort of what you were describing, but actually when I am reading all day or thinking all day or whatever, it gives me kind of a time to actually process and, and like recall all that I've sort of taken in and like give me an opportunity to really, yeah. It's good for uh, problem solving too when you face yeah. issues like, you know, trying to sort through something in, in the heat of the moment. It's very confusing. And when you just step back and just kind of meditate on it for, you know, a couple miles, you usually come up with some pretty good solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to your point about kind of getting properly getting into nature, um, it's, it's funny you mentioned that as I've gotten, um, I don't run super long distances, but as I've gotten older, one of the things I've started doing is doing longer backpacking trips, um, you know, which is like my way of literally just like kind of unplugging for, you know, five, <laughs> six days at a time, whatever it is, and like going straight into, you know, the, the backcountry somewhere. But it really takes like, a day or two to kind of get into the rhythm of it and to like, and like for it to click and you to really like leave behind all of the distractions. Yeah, I, th- I literally think the world would be a better place if, if everyone did what you just said, you know, just escape, just go backpacking for five days on a trail by yourself even is even it's even more uh, a powerful experience. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask, do you have a preference for what type of environment you run in um, in terms of, you know, the setting, the 
the climate, like hot or cold? What, what, what's your, what's your jam? <laughs> well, I've run across Death Valley in the middle of summer and yeah. I've run a marathon to the South Pole. So yeah. that's the hottest place and the coldest place on earth. And I definitely like the heat. Yeah. The cold is, uh, I don't know. It just seems more enveloping. It, it paralyzes you more, the cold, I think. So I really, I, I dig the heat. A lot of runners, like heat is their enemy. I just say, bring it. I, you know, I've run this race. I described the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which yeah. I don't know if you know about that race, but it's 135 mile continuous. Yeah. So I've done it 10 times and you know, it's, it's a, the temperatures exceeded 130 degrees one year. So, I mean, it is ungodly. Yeah. Yeah. I much prefer running in, I don't know. I run, do you, I run hot. Do you run hot? Do you run cold? Do you? I never sweat. It's the funniest oh, thing. I am, um, maybe it's my Greek heritage, but like I run with guys that are elite runners and they're sweating and they look at me like, why don't you sweat? Like you don't, you never perspire. I don't know why I don't, I never get hot. Yeah. Interesting. Is that something you've looked into? It is. And there's a couple of theory- Well, one, you know, my ancestors are from Greece, so it's pretty hot in the Southern Mediterranean. And um, they're also very vascular. So they're, uh, they have a lot of capillaries near the surface of their skin, which mm-hmm. helps cool. You know, my dad and sis were, um, uh, you know, the ancient relatives of Pheidippides, you know, the Greek. The original mas- marathoner. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, yeah. dad, we grew up in L.A. Like what village <laughs> in the hills of Greece chasing goats did I grow in, you know, grow up in. But um, maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. And my mom is from this island called Ikaria. And I don't know if you know of the Blue Zones. Have you ever heard of the Blue Zones? Oh, yeah. The super healthy, the, the environments on the planet where people grow into old age uh, and the healthiest, healthy lives. Yeah. yeah. So Ikaria, this island, um, has the highest concentration of what they call centenarians. So people that live over 100 years old. And so half my ancestry is from that island. So maybe I got good longevity genes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, have you ever thought, or have you ever done this? Have you ever, um, you know, thought about kind of really analyzing yourself physiologically? I mean, I've done all the, you know, the, the things, the likely suspects, if you will. So I've, I've gone to the Gatorade Institute and had my sweat rate, um, measured and I know it's very, very low. It's like off the charts, you don't sweat. Um, you know, my VO2 max has always been on the high side, but not extraordinary, which for an ultra marathoner is not that unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my lactate threshold is pretty high. Uh, I know that. I know I have um, a really high strength-to-weight ratio, um, low body fat. So I have all these attributes, but I really think it's it's all in your head. <laughs> Ultramarathoning is not – you don't do it with your body. I mean, if you have a body that performs, that's great, but it, it's all up top. Interesting. Well, so have you read about over what they call overtraining syndrome? Yes. So what do you make of that? So it's basically, my understanding of it is it's essentially um, something that some of the younger uh, ultra runners and, and endurance athletes are kind of falling into where they basically go like too hard, too long, too too fast, or maybe too early in their lives or something. Mm-hmm. And so they essentially like permanently bonk where their performance drops off precipitously and they can't seem to regain it. And it's not exactly clear why. Yeah. I think I might have experienced some of that, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, I really do. I think that um, I, I way overdid it. I mean, in hindsight, I know I way overdid it. I still love what I did. And I think that I don't know if I'll ever fully recover. I mean, for my age, yeah, maybe the you know, top 10%, 5% consistently. But I still feel like I'm not what I used to be. Like, my performance has never really come back. Like, I, I can't dig as deep as I used to. And people might say, well, you're doing great. I mean, you're, you know, you're, I don't want to say how old I am, but you're pretty old. <laughs> but I just feel like 
physiologically something something changed at that point. What was, yeah, what was the the moment or the event? You know, I I used to um, my my heart rate used to elevate really really quickly climbing not very steep uh, inclines like it race uh, unnaturally, and I thought why is my heart rate you know why can't I get my heart rate down? I'd still go on these long training runs even though my heart rate was really elevated. It just and it'd be really slow like my heart rate's racing but my pace is really slow, and I noticed that syndrome. Uh, I never had. My hormones checked or anything like that. I imagine I was afraid kind of to have them checked. But I think more often than not, um, especially with lay people or just recreational runners, um, overtraining is overstressed. Like I think so many people say, oh, I don't want to you know, work out two days in a row because I'll be overtraining. I think what you're referring to is just a very, very small fraction of ultramarathoners yeah. and, and marathoners. I mean, Ryan Hall, I don't know if you right. know who he is. I mean, he yeah, famously... Yeah had the whole thing and he just said, I'm, I'm not going to do this to my body, which I have a lot of respect for that. And his whole physique has changed completely, but he's, I, yeah. yeah, but he's, he's like, I'm hella healthier. I don't care. Yeah. So. Interesting. Yeah. So was the, so when was, the, when was the last time that you felt, you know, peak or sort of competitive in that way? Well, let's see, you know, I was not a, I was never a young, I started at 30. So I got into this, I yeah. mean, I won the Badwater Ultra Marathon, which is, you know, the quote unquote, the world's toughest foot race. I was 42 years old, which, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's kind of old. I felt like up until I was, you know, almost before I was 50, even at 50. And I, you know, Greg, I got to be honest, I can still sometimes like pull it out of the hat and like, wow, you know, you just ran a sub three marathon or something like that. But it's not like I can consistently go to the well. Mm. It's like it's kind of hit and miss. Like I might have a great race. And then like I, I thought I was going to really blow out Western States last year when I did it. Okay. Slowest time ever by seven hours. I mean, <laughs> it took me 27 hours. I've never finished, um, you know, uh, beyond 24 hours. And it took me 27 hours. And I was in great shape. I don't, it's, something just didn't work. Yeah. It's the thing about running for sure. Some days you just kind of have it and some days not so much. I think, yeah, there's, there's something. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure I've got over 100,000 miles on the chassis, so. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, have you done the math? I've kind of back a napkin, yeah. Man, over yeah. 100,000. And I've, like I said, I've run hundreds of road marathons, and that's got to, like you said, it's got to take a toll. I don't feel it really, but it's, I'm sure it does take a toll. Yeah. Is there any, are there any um, specific races that you try to try to kind of dig deep on or you're still aiming for, like, you know, for a fastest time for yourself or, you know, you feel that kind of competitive edge like creeping back in? You know, I have to be honest. In all of the racing I've done, uh, I've only one time set out saying, I really want to win this race. And th- and I won it. That was the year ran- won the Badwater Ultra Marathon. I yeah. saw, you know, th- I want to win this race. Like, I'm going to really go into it like I'm going to win it, damn it. And other than that, I always just go into the race for experience and say, I'm going to be the best dean that dean can be today, whatever that is. Uh, I'm not going to leave anything <laughs> on the road. I'll tell you that. It's going to be all gone when I get to the finish line, but that's all I can do. Yeah. I wonder what you make of the sort of the age of social media where younger athletes getting into this, uh, you know, develop their own followings online. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if you have any thoughts about whether they have a responsibility to use that that following, that influence uh, to some greater good or some some goal? You know, I think if it's in their nature, I, I think it, they should. But if they're fighting that, you know, if they're kind of selfish and just want to do it for themselves and bragging rights, so be it. Um, I just, by nature, like 
uh, trying to inspire others or trying, you know, just trying to lead by example and um, giving an example that that inspires people. I don't set out and say, hey, I want to inspire you. I just think I'm going to I'm going to just push so hard. And if that inspires someone, then so be it. Um, you know, as far as me using social media, I always have the filter that um, anything I, I, you know, push out on social media has got to have value to the recipient. Like that's the lens I look through. Like unless the person, you know, unless it's something that's going to give value to someone, either it's going to make them laugh, make them think, or give them some useful tidbit of, you know, um, nutrition or whatever, why waste someone's time? So that's kind of the, just the way I look at it. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, from what I've noticed, the um, the types of, of messages and posts that you put up typically tend to be kind of, you know, inspirational, like, hey, it's Monday, like, Monday's a tough day to get out, here's like a quote or some inspiration for you to kind of figure it out today. Yeah, thank you. I <laughs> This is a paid endorsement, yeah. I slipped him 100 before this interview. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, I, I, I wanted to ask too, I mean, so many uh, younger adventure athletes in particular, I mean, especially in this political climate, have gotten much more socially and politically conscious with their tweets, Instagram posts, and their just kind of overall message. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever gotten political with your, you know, your messaging to your followers? You know, I figured there's enough of that out there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I really haven't. I think people pretty much know where I stand on a lot of issues. But um, I've kind of avoided that, that uh, territory just because I think it's why do people need to hear my interview, you know, my perspective? Everyone's, everyone's, you know, got a perspective on something and mine's just going to be another voice uh, in the noise and there's a lot of noise. So if there's an issue, you know, I avoid politics, but if there's a specific issue I'm really passionate about, I'll get involved. But I tend to be more issue um, driven. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that you have started doing recently in the last few years, several years is, um, What's it, it? Sports diplomacy, essentially, where you go out on long runs. Well, why don't you? I was. Why don't you talk about it a little bit? Yeah, no, I was uh, approached by the U.S. State Department um, when uh, John Kerry was uh, when he was um, head of state. He was going to ride his bike. He's a big cyclist, like an ultra, like an elite cyclist, a good, a good like rider. He was going to ride. He was going to try and ride his bike 525 kilometers along the ancient Silk Road. Uh, between Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Okay. If you even know where those places are. <laughs> Roughly, yeah. Because it was 25 years of diplomatic relations between those countries. So to celebrate that 25-year anniversary, that's what he was going to do. Uh, it didn't work out for him. I don't know why. Probably security. So they said, well, who can do this? <laughs> Let's get Dean. So the idea was to run between Uzbekistan. Uh, wait, sorry. So you did you actually get a call from a representative of the State Department one day, or how that <laughs> yes. worked? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, actually, it was it was funny. I was um, I was running the San Francisco Marathon, and I met the guy at the marathon. He came up to me and said, "I work for the um, the U.S. Embassy in Kyrgyzstan, and we want to bring you over." And I'm like, "What? Do you, I don't even know where Kyrgyzstan is. I mean, I, I know it's kind of in the Middle East somewhere." Uh, or Central Asia somewhere, but I don't know where. And he said, well, I'll be in touch. And I thought, okay, never going to happen. I mean, I'm literally running, you know, the marathon, chatting with this guy. And then the State Department contacted me, yeah. Well, you must get, well, I would imagine you get approached like that pretty frequently, or at races. Somebody's trying to pitch you (laughs) while you're running. Does that happen frequently? I do, yeah. I get a lot of that. What's the most awesome product or idea that you have been pitched by somebody while on a race? There's this this 
stand-up bike. It's called an elliptigo, and it's kind of polarizing because people either think it's the geekiest thing they've ever damn seen or, like, wow, this thing's really cool. I kind of dig the thing, and I was running this. Uh, I, ra- I ran – this sounds crazy, but I ran from Sonoma – to San Diego. So um, I ran, I, I called it um, on a mission or mission possible. I wanted to see all the California missions and I heard there space like three days travel by foot. And I thought, well, I can run about three days worth of travel. So I started in Sonoma, which is the furthest mission um, in the north and ran, it was like 720 miles to San Diego uh, to run the rock and roll marathon. I thought, why take a plane? You can run there. So I ran to the rock and roll marathon. As I'm running, this guy passed me in an elliptico. He's like a pace guy. And I thought, that looks so much easier than what I just did. And Anyway, I got in touch with him. Um, he got in touch with me, actually. He said, you know, you want to try one of these things. And it was at the finish of the, of the race. They were, like, demoing. I tried it, and, like, I, I really loved it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've seen you on. I've seen like photos of you on that. Now that I think about it, yeah, you got to try one. I mean, people discount it, especially hardcore cyclists. Like you feel, <laughs> yeah. I feel like when I started snowboarding early on, you'd get so dissed by the skiers, and it's the same way when you're in a lift to go. These cyclists ride by and it's like, get no respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, back to the State Department approaching you, and yeah. So what was their yeah. pitch exactly? Like. Dean, we need you for a top secret assignment. You have to come and and run through these countries. Like, what what did they tell you? Yeah, no, they said, you know, um, we're from uh, the sports diplomacy department, and we'd like to um, bring you to uh, Central Asia to celebrate 25 years of diplomatic relations between Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. And there's the ancient Silk Road, and you're Greek. And it was like Alexander the Greek who did it. uh, And I'm like, all right, let's try it. But, I mean, it was the most incredible experience in my life. These these countries are not widely visited at all. So, I mean, I never saw a single McDonald's. There was not one Starbucks. I don't think I saw another American the whole time I was there for 15 days. Um, I was running, you know, in some really exotic and faraway places that were culturally so different than anything we have here. And did they know, did the people of these towns, cities that you were running through know that you were coming? Or how did that work? Because... Some of the stuff that I've read, it sounds like there are like people lining the streets and they have a sense that something is going on or that you're coming. Um, but then in others, it sounds like maybe you were, you know, it was a little more low key and under the radar. Yeah, no, I mean, I was in a lot of the um, smaller villages, I was big news. I mean, that was like the biggest thing that happened that year. So, you know, people had never met an American. Most of these yeah. people I met have never met an American, let alone seen an American live. And here I come, I don't, I guess I don't <laughs> represent the typical American, but I'm, you know, running down the street, kind of high-fiving them. They were just like in shock, like, hold it, this guy's actually, like, he's going to touch me, kind of thing. They're, they're looking at me like I'm some sort of deity, and I'm just running. And I'd get to these towns, and literally the entire town of two or th- 3,000 people would be waiting in the square to greet me. And they'd have like band, their local bands playing, uh, <laughs> and they're nomadic, so they'd present me with food. And the State Department briefed me. So I went to the State Department briefing on like diplomacy, and they said, when someone offers you food, you have to try it. It's an insult not to try it. So I'll never forget running into this first town. I'd run like 50 miles that day. I was across Uzbekistan. It was roasting hot. It was probably like 105 degrees. It's just brutally hot. I run into this town. And here are all these people, and they've got, like, this table. F- I mean, they've got enough food to 
fill, you know, to, to feed 20 people. And it's all for me. I mean, it's just piles of food. And this woman in costume comes out to present me with something and it looked like a, like half a coconut. So imagine chopping a coconut in half with this white coconut milk in there. So I'm like, oh, some electrolytes. This is great. I drink it. And it tastes like drinking Parmesan cheese. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's their national drink. It's fermented horse milk. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, whoa. So is it boozy too? It's, it's, it's like drinking vodka. Imagine pouring oh. vodka into Parmesan cheese and kind of grinding it all up. Sounds That's like what it tastes like. in Texas. <laughs> um, sorry, Texas. Um, interesting. What, what were the other... Uh, yeah, so how, <laughs> how'd that make you feel? Uh, I mean, I could go on and on about this experience, but it was it was, it was was comical. You know, I got to write a book about this. I mean, so I fly to Uzbekistan. It was three flights. It was like 42 hours of air travel. I get picked up by the State Department, and they're driving me to the hotel, and they're briefing me as we're, as we're going. And the last thing they say to me is, oh, we got to tell you your room's going to be bugged. I'm like, oh, kind of like a throwback to the Soviet era because it was a Soviet bloc country. And they're yeah. like, no, no, we've, we've asked them not to do that. But when diplomats come over, they bug your room. Whoa. I'm like, you're kidding me. And they said, no. They said, look at the, the uh, fire extinguishers um, on the roof. Half of them got cameras. And they said, when you shower, look for something behind the, the mirror that doesn't fog. There's a camera in there. Whoa. I'm like, no way. So I would walk into my room. Literally, every time I walked back to my room, I would just strip naked and just go, woo, check out this American. I just thought it was so, I mean, who's watching me? And yeah. I'm thinking, what what the hell are they going to report? You know, I'm just like twirling around. I'm like, <laughs> here I am. I'm armed and dangerous. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. So what, uh, so in theory, in, you know, these diplomacy trips that you've taken, you are supposed to be like representing American values and culture. And so is there, so what, what does that mean to you? Like, what do you try to express or what sort of message are you trying to get across? You know, to me, it was obviously a message of, um, of unity, of, you know, that, hey, it's an American, but he's just a guy. Like, you know, he's not going to come in in a suit. I think, you know, when they think about a diplomat, they think about a guy in a suit that kind of is behind yeah. the stage, just sits up on, stands up on the podium, you know, reads from some script, you know, shakes the president's hand and walks off stage. This is Dean. I mean, he's just like, he's high-fiving you, he's running. I, I took probably, I probably had 5,000 people join me for runs. So schools that show up on the side of the road, like the cross-country coach are here, oh, this guy's coming to town. And we'd run like four or five miles together. So that happened constantly across the country. And it was just, um, it was super endearing. Like it was, yeah, I just felt like it was a great, and we really broke through. Like people, it really resonated with people to bring, to have me there and just have me be a personable guy, not like some diplomat, literally. Yeah. yeah. Do I have this right? Are you trying to run in every country on earth right now? Is that a goal? Well, it's, it is a goal. It's a dream, I should say at this okay. point. So uh, I once ran 50 marathons in all of the 50 U.S. states in yeah. 50 days. And it, to me, it was just the greatest road trip because I got to see all of America. I got to run and met people. Um, it was just, it was so much fun is what it was to me. So I thought, you know, you've done that. What else could you do? And I thought, why not try to run a marathon in every country of the world in one year? So on set up, yeah, set on a global expedition. And in one year, you know, just dedicate yourself just to that. Don't try to piece them off, you know, one by one over 20, over a lifetime. Do it in one year. 
because it's going to focus a little more attention, and I think it'll break through to more people to hear this guy's doing this. Um, so I've been working on that for about five years and failing. And it's really hard to pull this off, you know, getting the sponsors you aligned. logistically, yeah. No, I've got a great – I work with a logistics company called uh, Hawkeye Sports and Entertainment, and they, like, coordinate the Olympic torch run around the world. So they're logistics experts. We have a full plan, a logistics plan. The State Department has uh, a list of countries where I can't leave the airport, so we had just have to set up a treadmill in the airport, you know, like Iraq, <laughs> you know, kind of like Afghanistan. Like Afghanistan would be a base run. But some, some places, North Korea, it's going to be in an airport on a treadmill. Yeah. Uh, so we have that in place, but it's just it's just getting it all together. I mean, it's, it's expensive, first of all, and getting sponsors lined up and pull, you know, pulling it all off is, um, is not easy. And I'm failing until I succeed. I'm going to succeed. And I think part of the magic of what I'm trying to do is I'm going to invite the local country people to come run with me. So it'll be, it'll be more than just one guy trying to run, you know, 203 marathons in one year. It'll be, again, this kind of message of unity and, you know, running unites people. Uh, so much in this world divides us, right? Or the color of our skin, uh, the God we worship, you know, language we speak. But running is a commonality all humans have. And when we run, we just feel connected. Whether you don't speak the language of the person next to you or not, you just feel like you're brethren, you really feel that they have a connection. I don't know if you've ever run overseas with people that don't speak your language or hike with people, but you just you, there's like a a kindred spirit sort of that arises. You just feel each other's energy. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what that is. Part of it, I think, maybe is uh, the act of running is also kind of the act of suffering a little bit. And I, I found that um, it's like a good bonding. You know, it's a way to bond with somebody for sure just to go through it. I think um, shared suffering brings people together. And I, I mean, look at war. You know, guys that go through war together, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're like friends for life. They're just, there's that connection there. And I think it's the same with running. You, you can, you know, you have empathy for the other person because you know how much it hurts because it damn well hurts you. Yeah. Yeah. And so you are actually off. I don't want to keep you too much longer. I know you have to get to dinner. Uh, <laughs> I got to run to dinner, yeah. Yeah, and so you're actually going to set off through the city, continuing running uh, to go get dinner after this. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And then are you going to run from dinner back up north <laughs> to home and Marin? I haven't decided that yet or not. I, unfortunately, if it's not that, is it an Uber or what happens? I, I, it's a Lyft. Yeah, okay. I, did, I, I held off forever for from installing the, the Lyft app because it's an easy out. Totally. Like if I didn't have a way to get there, I'm like, I'm too cheap to like buy a cab ride back. So we'll see. We'll see how much wine I have at dinner. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for stopping by, Dean. This is great. Yeah, this, thanks for the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again to Dean for making the time to come on the podcast. If you want to keep up on what he's up to, follow him on Instagram at Ultramarathon. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is a part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, please throw us a rating or a review. Our music today is a track called Fuzzy and True by the Mini Vandals, and it comes courtesy of the YouTube Audio Library. See you next time.